Amen. I am so glad that is true. His mercy is more. Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, and we're going to continue in our series in Joshua called Courage Over Fear. And this morning, we will be in chapter 5, reading various verses. In a moment, we'll start in that very first verse, Joshua chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. A few years ago, a team that was heavily favored to win a football game was surprisingly defeated by a team everyone knew was much weaker. And after it was over, a reporter cornered one of the players on that losing team and asked him this question, how in the world did you guys lose to them? And he replied and said, we lost in the locker room. In other words, it wasn't about who had better talent and it wasn't about who had home field advantage. He's saying they lost because they failed to prepare. They lost before the coin toss, before the kickoff, before the first run or tackle or pass. Many times in life, if you're not careful, you can lose in the locker room. I've said many times at any given point, you are in one of three places. You are either in trouble, getting out of trouble, or you're about to be in trouble and you just don't know it yet. And life is full of battles. Many times victory in battle is not determined by what happens during the battle, but by what already happened before the battle. How you come out is determined by how you went in. You can fail the test before even taking it. In our scripture this morning, Israel is about to fight a battle against Jericho. We saw in chapter 3 how God cut off the waters of the Jordan River and Israel crossed over on dry ground. They have now entered the promised land and they can literally see Jericho in the distance. But before they go any further, there are some preparations that need to take place. There's some spiritual armor that they still need to put on. Before God will fight through them, he wants to do a work within them. And we see in this a picture of how God often works in our lives. This morning, I want us to notice Three ways that we prepare for the battle before the battle even begins. First of all, you'll notice there's a cleansing we must experience. There's a cleansing we must experience. Look at verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. The inhabitants of Canaan knew that the God of Israel was real. They knew that God was fighting for his people, and yet they still would not repent. 
they probably believed that Israel would cross over the Jordan River once those floodwaters receded, but now they are already in the promised land. The Canaanites thought they still had months to prepare, but now they are caught totally off guard. So we think that it's logical to us that God will send them to attack immediately, right? Wrong. That may be how man would do it, but that's not how God does it. Before they fight against Jericho, there are some issues that need to be resolved involving areas of obedience in the lives of the people. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. What does he mean the second time? He means that Joshua is to institute circumcision in Israel a second time. Well, why would he have to institute this practice again? Well, skip down to verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Those men who left Egypt, they were circumcised, but those men had died. What about that new generation? What about all of those men of war who were born in those 40 years while Israel was wandering in the wilderness? What about them? Well, notice verse 7. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. During that time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, listen to me carefully, they ceased the practice of circumcision. Now, why was that a problem? Why was that a big deal? Let me remind you, in Genesis chapter 17, God instituted the practice of circumcision for Israel. God told Abraham that he and the males in his family were to be circumcised, every Jewish male, on the eighth day. It was to them the sign of the covenant God had made with them. It was a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It was an external sign of their spiritual internal relationship with God. And every time a Jewish male was circumcised, it reminded them of the covenant and all of the promises of the covenant that God had given them. It reminded them that they were the people of the covenant. And as part of that covenant, one day would come a special Jewish male who would be born the Messiah who would save us. And circumcision was also a way for them to differentiate themselves from their pagan neighbors. It reminded them, you are different. You are not to be like the world around you. You are not to think like them. You are not to speak like them. You are not to act like them. It reminded them that they were a forgiven people. It symbolized the removal of sin. Just a few months prior to the events of Joshua chapter 5, Moses, before his death, in one of the last sermons he preached in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he talked to them about the circumcision of the heart. 
Just as there is a physical circumcision that involves the removal of flesh, there's a spiritual circumcision that involves the removal of sin. And the one was meant to point to the other. Now, let me pause and say, in the New Testament, it is made very clear, abundantly clear, that circumcision for us does not matter, not even a little bit. For the Christian, circumcision is replaced by baptism. Baptism by immersion is that external sign. It's how we demonstrate that we have this new relationship with God through Christ, that we are a part of this new covenant community called the church. But in Joshua chapter 5, for the Israelites, this was a matter of obedience And the fact that they were not doing it, the fact that they had not been doing it, it was a very big deal. In fact, in the book of Exodus, you remember that story when Moses was returning to Egypt? And it turns out that even Moses had not sacrificed his sons. It got to that point that God was going to call him home. God would have taken his life. It would have been someone else leading Israel out of Egypt had Moses' wife not intervened. That's how serious this was. And this was, for them, simply an area of disobedience. This was an area in which their lives did not line up with the Word of God. And so before that battle begins, they've got to address that. They've got to deal with that. They've got to make that right. Now, there's another area in which it appears to me Israel was neglecting to do what God told them to do. Look at verse 10. Now, the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. A few weeks ago, I pointed out that on the day Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, the Bible tells us what day of the year it was. It was the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. God could have sent Israel into the promised land any other day of the year, but God specifically chose to send them in on that day because according to Scripture, that was the day that each family was to select the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed four days later. God intentionally sent them across the river into the promised land on the 10th of Nisan so that that would be the very first thing they had to do. God's reminding them that this is how they have the victory. A lamb was slain, its blood was shed, they placed their faith in the shed blood of that lamb. And for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood was shed for us. We are saved by placing our faith in him. But I think it's very interesting. The Bible specifically tells us Israel observed the first Passover in Egypt. And the Bible specifically tells us that they observed the Passover on the first anniversary after they left Egypt. And now the Bible specifically tells us that they crossed over the Jordan, and now, once again, they're practicing the Passover. But ladies and gentlemen, there were 39 years in between. And there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that during that time they were practicing the Passover Are we to believe that the same people who would not obey God by circumcising their sons, that they were doing this? I think not. 
And once again, this was a matter of obedience. You have these two ceremonies, both of which were commanded by God, circumcision and the Passover. They haven't been circumcising their sons for four decades. It appeared they had not practiced the Passover in almost that long. And yet, all this time, God was still good to them. God was still patient with them. God kept leading them. God kept providing for them. The manna kept coming. And yet, there came that point where they could go no further until these issues were addressed. There was a point at which God said, this is as far as you can go and no further until you resolve these issues, until you repent and obey. They've already entered the promised land. They are, in Joshua chapter 5, in possession of a tiny piece of the land. They have a tiny slice of it. And God wants them to have it all. But it's as if God's saying to them, until you obey me in these areas, this is all you can have and nothing more. I wonder how many Christians are content with a tiny slice of what God wants to give them. A tiny slice of their inheritance. A tiny slice of their blessings. It's as if they take one step into the promised land and can't go any further because of some area of disobedience in their lives. I, I greatly fear that some here may not be enjoying the fullness of what is yours. You're still clinging to that besetting sin in your life because you have not yet learned that what God is offering you is so, so much better. Before we can be victorious in the battles we face, there is this spiritual cleansing that must take place in which we identify those areas of disobedience in our lives and we begin to line up our lives with what the Word of God says. Well, there's something else that must happen before the battle. Another way we prepare ourselves, there's nourishment we must receive. There's nourishment we must receive. Something interesting happened as soon as Israel observed the Passover. Look at verse 11. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. You remember when Israel left Egypt? They were many people. They had a little food. There was a great need. So God provided for them supernaturally by providing this thing called manna, this bread-like substance. Six times a week, God caused it to appear. And on the sixth day, he gave them double to cover the Sabbath. So every day they had food to eat. Every day it was there. It was always enough. Hey, Mom, what's for breakfast? Manna. What's for lunch? Manna. How about dinner? Manna. And tomorrow? Manna. The day after that? Manna. 40 years of manna. Then all of a sudden, it was gone. 
And as good as it was, I bet they were glad. But the Bible tells us the exact day when the manna stopped coming. It was the day after the Passover. It was not an accident that after they entered the promised land and after they observed the Passover, then the manna stopped coming. Why is that? Because now it is time for God's people to have a new diet. God wants them to, in, to start enjoying the foods of Canaan. I tell you that because, guess what? When we enter the promised land of salvation, we have a new diet. And I'm not talking about the food you give to your body. I'm talking about the food you give to your soul repeatedly. The metaphor of food is used in Scripture in order to describe the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted, you remember what he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word of God's Word is like food to us. It fills us and it nourishes us and gives us the strength so that we can carry on. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Babes need milk. Well, guess what? We need spiritual milk as well. Those basic truths, those fundamental truths of the Word of God. Oh, but we don't stop there because Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. There's a point where, yes, we enjoy that milk, but we move on from milk to the meat of God's Word. We go deeper in our study and our knowledge of the Word of God. Oh, but even then, it's not enough just to know it. Listen to what Jesus said in John 4, 34. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work not just to know it, but to do it. Jesus said, that is like food to me. Listen, you're not going to be victorious in the Christian life if you're not being fed. That's why it's so important that you read the Word of God and hear the Word of God and study the Word of God, and not just on your own, but at some point with others, your brothers and sisters in Christ, because they're going to see things and note things that you did not see or notice but not just that, but to be ingesting the Word of God so that it becomes a part of who we are. I wonder how many spiritual battles do we lose in the Christian life because we are spiritually malnourished. There is this nourishment that we must receive before we go into battle. A cleansing we must experience. There's nourishment we must receive. But one more thing I want you to notice in this passage. There's a presence we must encounter. I want you to notice verse 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, 
take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. It turns out it wasn't just the people of Israel who needed to be prepared. It was Joshua too. And it appears that he knew it because the Bible says in verse 13 that Joshua was by Jericho. Back in chapter 2, they'd sent spies to go check out the city and bring a report. But it sounds to me like Joshua just needed to see it for himself with his own two eyes. Maybe he went under the cover of darkness at night, and I can just picture Joshua standing there outside of the city, and he's looking up. Do you realize he'd probably never seen a walled city before? And he's just standing there by Jericho, looking at the city, thinking, how in the world are we going to defeat this what tools do we have what what weapons do we have to overcome that and as he's standing there the bible says he looks up and he sees someone obviously this was no ordinary man there must have been something very very impressive about his appearance. Now, there's been a lot of debate about who this person was in Joshua chapter 5. This is not my opinion, but there are some who will contend uh, that this was an angel. There are others who will argue that this was what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. What do we know that the text tells us about this person? We know that he calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. We know that Joshua calls him Lord, Adonai. We know that Joshua bows before him and worships him. Now, in the book of Revelation, when John got all caught up in the presence of an angel and tried to worship the angel, the angel said, stop, don't worship me, worship God. But this person receives Joshua's worship And he tells Joshua to remove his sandals because the place where he is standing is holy ground. Now, does that sound familiar? Of course it does. This is exactly what God said to Moses when he experienced God through that burning bush. And God revealed his name, Yahweh, the I am. Now, you put all this together. Maybe this was a vision, but I think pretty clearly this person in Joshua 5 represents the presence of God with Joshua. If God had revealed himself in all of his glory, Joshua would not have lived. God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. But what we know is that God was revealing himself to Joshua in such a way that he could see him and hear him and understand him. And so here is Joshua. He's in Canaan. He is right outside of Jericho, a city full of paganism and evil, a place where they literally sacrifice children. And yet in that moment, even that place became holy ground. What is holy ground? It is wherever we encounter the presence of God. Your home in that sense, 
can be holy ground. And I hope it will be. Your workplace can become holy ground. Students, that desk in your classroom at school can be, in a sense, holy ground. Even a sinful, evil place like Jericho becomes holy ground when God shows up. And so Joshua encounters God through this person. He's holding his sword. Notice, he's already pulled it out. It's in his hand. He is ready for battle. And Joshua sees him, and the very first words out of his mouth, are you for us or our adversaries? And you just know that deep down in his heart, he's praying, please let him be on our side. Please let him be on our side. Please let him be on our side. And so he just decided to not beat around the bush, and he came out and just asked the question, are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? And this person answered, no. Which is kind of like saying, none of the above. Well, why would he say no? Because Joshua was asking the wrong question. You see, the question he should have been asking was not, are you on our side? The question he should have been asking was, are we on your side? Understand the difference. We too can ask the wrong question. The question we should ask is not, is God on our side? But are we on his side? It's a different way of thinking. You see, we don't ask God to join our kingdom. We join his kingdom. And we don't ask God to follow our plans. We follow his plans. We don't give God orders. We receive orders from him. James Montgomery Boyce described it this way. He said, it was not for Joshua to claim the allegiance of God. It was for God to claim the allegiance of Joshua. That's what he needed to learn. And as soon as he learned this truth, what did he do? In verse 14, he fell on his face. This man He's a military man. He is the leader of a nation, and yet he puts his face on the ground in the presence of a holy God. Listen to me carefully, church. This is when the battle was won. Not when they surrounded Jericho and started marching around. Not when the walls fell down. No, the battle was, was won before it began. It was won when Joshua got on his face before God in a position of surrender. He's receiving orders, ready to obey, willing to do whatever God says. That is when the victory comes. I read a story about a tribe in a very remote part of Africa that has an interesting tradition where a rite of passage where they mark that moment when a boy becomes a man. At a certain age, uh, they would take a teenage boy and they would blindfold him so that he could not see a thing. And then they would take him and drop him off at a remote part of the African bush where he had to spend an entire night unable to see what was going on around him, a dangerous place, where you could hear the roaring of lions and other beasts. 
It was a terrifying experience. This young man would be very frightened. His heart would perhaps beat within his chest until he felt like it was about to explode. But eventually, the sun rises. And that next morning, when he begins to feel the warmth of the sun on his skin, he is allowed to take off that blindfold. And that is when he discovers that his father was there all along. Watching him guarding him. He didn't realize it, but he was in his father's presence the whole time. Sometimes like that boy, we feel frightened, we feel alone, but it is in the presence of God when we are like Joshua in surrender before God that we suddenly come to realize that God is with us. And just like in Joshua 5, his sword is drawn, and he is ready and willing to fight for his people. Joshua asked the question, what do you want me to do? And notice the answer, just remove your sandals. No battle plan. No list of steps. Do this, do that, do this, do that. No. Just wait. Wait and worship and then after you've spent time in my presence, then I will send you into battle. Sometimes we forget who fights our battles. We think we can fight them on our own. And, and just like Joshua, we need this time in the presence of God. With the telephone turned off and with the TV off, with every distraction put away, because it turns out, no matter how much doctrine you know, as good as that is, no matter how much theology you've accumulated, apart from time spent in the presence of God, simply experiencing the presence of God, you will fail. You may be facing your own Jericho this morning. Maybe, like Joshua, you're standing there looking at that obstacle in front of you, and you don't see any way forward. You don't see any path to victory. But listen, child of God, Christian brother, Christian sister, the Lord is present. He's watching. He's already drawn his sword. He fights our battles. So let me just encourage you to take that place wherever you are and turn it into holy ground by spending time in the presence of the Lord. I said at the beginning of this message that what happens in the battle is usually determined by what happened before the battle. And yet there's one battle we could never win, no matter how much we prepared beforehand, and that is the battle against sin and death. And that is why 2,000 years ago, Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he fought that battle for us, Jesus won the battle over temptation, resisting it every single time. He was without sin. He won the battle against sin for us by taking the full punishment of sin upon himself on the cross for all the things that we had done. He won that battle against death when he rose on the third day. And the victory that he won because he lived and died on the cross and rose again, he offers that victory to you and to me and to whosoever will call upon his name, believing in him and receiving him as Lord 
of their lives. You join me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we remember what Jesus said, that in this world, we will have troubles. And yet we can be of good cheer, for Christ has overcome the world. We thank you that even before the battles of life come, you're already there, you're already working, preparing us, getting us ready, and Father, I know there are some in this room who right now are going through some especially severe battles. And we all face battles on a regular basis. But for some, it's especially difficult in these moments. And they need that extra measure of grace. And so God, I pray for all of us here that you would, first of all, help us if there's some area of spiritual cleansing that needs to take place in our lives if there's an area of obedience that needs to be resolved, an area in which we need to line up our lives with what the Word of God says, that we would do that, that there would be confession and there would be repentance, that there would be surrender. Of course, we realize that that can't even happen if we don't know your Word, if we're not being fed from your Word. So help us, God, also to be continually feeding on, on your Word and on your will by taking what we read and hear and applying it to our lives. And God, we thank you as well that you sent Jesus to fight this battle for us, that he was willing to come from heaven to earth and fight and win the battle that we could never win on our own. I pray for those who are here today who need in these moments to, to take that step of surrender for the very first time and place their faith in Christ, and confess Him as Lord. God, how I pray that you would move in our midst. If there are any who today need to come to Jesus in faith, confessing their sins, confessing Christ as Lord, that this would be truly be their day of salvation. God, would you have your way? And God, would you help all of us, Lord, having been in your presence this morning, having experienced your presence, to be changed people, to be different when we leave than when we came. And we'll give you the thanks and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.